um, Romans 11, verses 30 through 36. Can we pray first? I feel like I feel like my um, my own mind is is scattered this morning. Father God, we just come before you now. Thank you, Lord, that you are the way, the truth, and the life. Thank you that we have an opportunity to gather together. What a precious, joyful gift it is to be in your presence with other believers, with our brothers and sisters in Christ who, who love us so much. Lord, thank you for this church. Thank you for the unity. Thank you for the love, Lord, that, um, that I feel and I know many others feel um, as we worship together. I pray that you would continue to build this church in a way that honors you. And I pray that you would even now open our eyes to see, um, open our ears to hear uh, the truth of your word and what Tommy will be sharing today. And we thank you, Lord, for uh, the blessing it is to be able to be here. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth and the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Thank you, worship team. and. Thank you, Diane, and good morning, Grace Life. Everybody alive? Everybody awake? Everybody ready to jump in together? Yeah, well, listen, I'm going to pray one more time, and then uh, I'm going to share a quick update. I think what I'm going to do is share the update first. You know, we a couple of weeks ago, I announced to you our church is growing, so our leadership needs to be developed and grow alongside of our numeric growth, and the Lord has put Right on our radar, four lay elders, you have nominated them, we've been meeting with them, we've been doing our homework, interviewing them, talking to their spouses, and our bylaws call for a 21-day period so that you can interact with the names of these men who have been nominated. We walk in the light here. That's one of our cultural values. You know, the Bible gives us a model for how the New Testament church should operate, how it should be led, how it should be governed. And it calls for what we call plurality of godly men. It's never like one anointed hierarchy leader at the top like Moses calling all the shots. Uh, I was telling our men the other night, a lot of people still use that model. We forget that Moses was the most meek and humble man on the face of the earth. If that's the case, that model works, right? <laughs> you get a guy at the top who's arrogant and filled with himself and proud and he doesn't want to be accountable, that model tanks. And the New Testament model is a plurality. That means more than one. Every time the word elder or an associated term that means the same thing is used, 99% of the time it's in the plural tense. Paul said establish elders, appoint elders. So Grace Life Church is not this enormous megachurch, 
but we nevertheless want to honor and obey that model of leadership that's been handed down to us in the New Testament, which means we need elders, plural. So we have three right now, myself, and we have Bill Roth and Steve Ekman, but we're adding four more to the mix. And here are those men who are lay elders, and we're giving you 21 days. This is uh, day seven. I announced this last week. To interact with those men. Here's a picture of their wife so that you know who they are. Um, here are the qualifications. Who can serve in the church? Who can lead as elders? Who can be a pastor? Men with desire. That means they have an aspiration, a willingness to serve. It's a commitment. It's a sacrifice. Men with character. That means that they are above reproach. And listen, the list, I've told you, the list of qualifications in the New Testament, there are 16 items in that. Two of those are things you either have uh, or you don't have, a, 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 an ability to teach, to defend and articulate the gospel, uh, and this desire to do that, and the others are characters. They're characteristics that you develop, godly character. So men with desire, men with character, and then men with gifting, men who are able to, te to teach. So we're, we're asking you to pray over these names. And if you want to reach out to the existing elders right now and say, you know what, I affirm these men, they've already been nominated, so in some sense you've already done that. But if you want to reach out with another affirmation, like, hey, wholehearted approval, can't wait for these men to be installed officially to serve, or if you have a burden or a concern, or maybe you've seen something and you want to bring to our attention, that's fine. Here's the way you can do that. I think probably the best way, that's my email address. You can, reach, you can reach me right there, all right? 24-7. That, that's a way to reach out to me and let me know what's going on. So, that being said, we are coming to a close of this three-chapter little mini-series in the book of Romans. Uh, the book of Romans we've been going through for almost three years now, and we've called it Engage. How to engage with God, how to engage in some ways with yourself to know more about who you are in Christ. Uh, how to engage the world, how to engage one another. And then we came to chapters 9, 10, and 11, and we're talking about God's sovereign plan with the Gentiles, with the Jews, with history. Where is this all going? And we're coming to the very end of that now in this message. So I want to pray, and then we'll jump in together and talk about that passage that Diane just read. So let's pray. Lord, thank you again. For the, the gift, as Paul Tripp said, the gift of the gathered church that we can unite together under the banner of your love, and we can go deep together. Lord, this passage is a celebration of the depths of the grace and the riches and the knowledge and the wisdom of Almighty God, who in his love and his providence and his sovereignty devised a way for fallen, sinful, rebellious men and women like us to be reconciled to him, to be brought into his family, to be adopted, cleansed, freed, justified, to be sons and daughters of this almighty king, to be filled with hope, to be filled with gratitude, to not be radically insecure anymore, to not dwell in the hopelessness of this worldview that we absorb so easily all around us. I pray today it would be transformational, Lord. In the very next chapter, that's what Paul says, that we not be conformed to the pattern of thinking we see in this world, not be pressed into that mold, but rather we would be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Lord, help us to practice that today and experience that today. Will you please renew our mind, open our eyes? We know there are powerful, 
compelling realities in this passage of Scripture we're going to look at. This is a book, Lord, we don't just read it, it reads us, it analyzes us, it shows us who we are, it shows us what God has accomplished through Christ and His Holy Spirit within us, and it shows us our mission in the world. We need that today, Lord. We so desperately need that, God. There are so many competing voices inside of us, all around us, that drown out Your glory. And we need that today. Show that to us. Fill us with that. And I pray against any opposing force or presence. Lord, I just sense that today. I, I, sense, I sense hostility and opposition, Lord, to this message, to these truths, to, to the power and the joy and the hope that this is going to bring into our lives. And I pray you would hold the enemy at bay. Lord, help us to be united and to be empowered together today. Thank you for the guests that you brought. Thank you for those that are watching from home. May we leave this place changed because of your amazing grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, guys, here's our outline. Let's jump right into it. Paul is talking about and celebrating and exploring, and he's unpacking something that's really rich and something that's really deep and something that's really powerful. And so that's what we want to do together. So I got two points today. How about that? Just trying to change things up a little bit. Make sure you're awake. We usually go with the three-point style. Today it's two. Point number one, the gospel holds depths that require unpacking but yield wonder. The gospel holds, there are depths in the gospel that you have to unpack. You have to peel back every layer. No, I'm not going to say like an onion, okay? <laughs> it's got layers, it's got depths, and it requires work, it requires energy, it's a joyful energy. It's a joyful work. And that's what Paul has been doing, really, the whole book of Romans. And that's what we want to do today. That's point one. Point number two, unpacking and exploring and celebrating these depths. It's a community project. It's something that God intends for you and I to do together. And there's something empowering when we gather together and do this that does, let me say this as clear as I can, that will not and cannot and isn't designed to happen when you are by yourself. No, I'm not saying that the people who aren't here this morning are hopeless, the people that are homebound and that have health concerns that are streaming. I'm grateful for that technology. What I'm saying is, by design, God has structured His church and wired His church for us to be together collectively. That's the way the New Testament lays out the purpose and the design for the church is that we are better together, we're stronger together, and there are things we're going to discover together that we're not going to discover by ourselves. It just doesn't work that way. It won't happen. You can get so far, but no further. So, point number one, let's jump into it together. This is really the passage I want to focus on today, just to keep things really easy for us. Verse 33 says this, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments, and how inscrutable His ways. We could spend all eternity plumbing the depths of what this passage means for us, all the implications. It's so pregnant, it's so deep, it's so profound, and honestly, as a pastor, I feel so insufficient even trying to get up here and declare to you the meaning of this and how this can make application in our lives, but I'm going to try with God's help. I believe that this world, the mold that this world is pressing us into, I could use two words to describe it, and I have before. One is that we are a very cynical people. We are a very cynical culture. We're living in the most 
cynical and secular age that I think we've ever seen. People are distrustful. That's what cynical means. Cynicism is you are distrustful of human nature, even your own. You're distrustful of authority. You're distrustful of anything that smells organized, right? You're suspicious of other people. You believe the absolute worst. You're jaded. You're disillusioned. You're disappointed about where the world is at, where it's been, where it's going. There's absolutely no hope. We are a very cynical age. See, if you're, if you're skeptical, there's a little bit of hope. You can say, hey, there's a silver lining in this cloud. You've got to look really hard to find it. If you're cynical, you say, don't bother looking for the silver lining because there ain't none, pardon my Arkansan French. There's no point. What's the point? So we are a cynical people, and there's, very, there's a lot of reasons for this. One is our own experience. Our whole life maybe has one, been one of cynical. We're, we're perpetually disappointed. Our expectations are never met. One person said this expectations, uh, you know, breed disappointment. They always do because we never manage them. We have our hopes of this happening and this happening, and it just tanks. Another reason I told you is, is all the news, all the global news that is paraded before us. And look, I'm not, just to clarify, I'm not calling for you to be a Luddite and bury your head collectively in the sand. That's, I mean, that's what the world already says, Christian. You, know, you guys are you know, in your stained glass prisons and you bury your head in the sand and you're naive. I'm not saying you should never get news that's reliable and accurate. You know, uh, good luck with that if you believe in luck, right? What I'm saying is, if that is your steady diet, if that's what's stock in your pantry is just global news, you are going to be one of the most cynical and perpetually jaded people on the face of the planet. Because listen, man, there's good money to be had for you to be pessimistic and doubtful and skeptical and afraid. You know that, right? If you are afraid, the news people are fist bumping and high-fiving each other. That's their job, to keep you afraid and dependent on them. It's like, oh, the world's on fire, chicken little, the sky's falling, tune back in at six and we'll give you the answers. But they won't, they never do. You tune in at six and then you tune in at eight and then you listen to the, you know, the people, the radio personalities and everything's chaotic, everything's a disaster, we're all going to die and burn, right? We're cynical. Here's another word to describe the culture and age we live in, shallow, superficial. There's lots of reasons for that. First of all, would you guys agree with that? Everybody's being really quiet today. Are we cynical? Yes. Amen. Yes, we are. Are we superficial? That's a harder one. You feel, you feel like I'm accusing you. I'm saying that's the water that you swim in if you live in the West in 2023, right? If you're absorbing the worldview of the people around you, you're going to be a shallow, superficial person because everything that's put in front of you on social media is trite. It's about an inch deep, right? It's very trite and shallow. People are, are they're grasping for significance. They're grasping for greatness. It's just interesting to me, man. You contrast what you see in the world with what Paul is saying. He's saying there are riches here that God wants you to have. He's going to give them to you. Did you see where Arnold Schwarzenegger was in Africa the other day? And he was, uh, he was filming a, um, oh man, one of my daughters could help me. I forget all the social media platforms. Snapchat, is that it? He was filming a Snapchat video and out of nowhere, this dude, this, this, <laughs> this dude comes, he flies in and does a flying drop kick in the back of Arnold Schwarzenegger, the goat, man, the muscle goat. And it's, it's, it's out there. You can Google it later so you can be superficial and shallow. You can Google it and watch it, right? <laughs> Out of nowhere, this dude comes and does a flying uh, 
jump kick to Arnold's back. Now, of course, Arnold barely budges, and he joked about it later. He goes, man, this is why you work out your back and your glutes, you know? Did a flying kick, and they heard the guy. They overheard him saying this, please, Arnold, help me. I need a Lamborghini. That's what he's, that. I mean, I don't know. I don't know the reasoning behind that. Something's off. But this guy, <laughs> he, wanted this, he wanted this car, man. He wanted this symbol of wealth and power and influence, so he thought, here's greatness. I'm in the presence of greatness right here. Arnold can help me. So his reasoning was, I'll do a flying drop kick, and he'll give me, you know, half a million bucks to get a Lamborghini or whatever. Uh, and Paul's like, it's right here, man. You don't have to go do a flying drop kick. I'll just give it to you. I see it all around us, man. People are just grasping for, for something that Sarah was sharing with me the other day. There's this young, maybe he's a millionaire, maybe he's a billionaire, some young billionaire tech. And he so desperately wants to stay young forever. He is spending millions and millions and millions of dollars so that, in his own words, he can have the organs of a 17-year-old. Now, look, I'm not making... Listen, guys, I'm not, I don't want to be one of those pastors that makes fun of the world. My heart weeps and, and aches, and I grieve over it. I, if I were not in Christ, I can totally see myself exactly where he is. If I had millions of dollars, and this is it, man, you know... You've got one life to live, right? I mean, that's the thinking of the secular people around us. You've got one life to live. Uh, it's, it, there's FOMO, fear of missing out. And what's the other one? You only live once. YOLO, right? So, hey, if you've got money, man, do all you can to prolong it. So what's this guy doing? He is taking hundreds of supplements every single morning. I don't want to know what they are. And he's also doing this. He's spending millions of dollars to have his son's plasma. He has a 17-year-old son to have his son's plasma injected into him every week. I mean, if you're a son, you're like, Dad, come on. <laughs> I mean, I really want you to be young forever too, Dad, but you're killing me, right? Here's another one. I read the other day where Kim Kardashian said that if she could, if she knew for certain that she could stay young forever and she had to eat her poop every day to do it, she would. Now, I'm sorry, guys. You had to come to church and you're hearing this garbage, Right? But is that just a little window? That's how the world thinks about these things. There, Ecclesiastes says that God has put eternity in our heart. And man, we're grasping for it. We're doing everything we can to grab hold of something great so that we can feel significant. So that really we can feel righteous. We've talked about that before, right? We are living in a cynical and a shallow age. And the name of this message is Out of the Shallows because here... It's what God is calling us to through the Apostle Paul. He's saying, oh, the depths. Paul wants to show you something that is so deep and so amazing and so profound and so anchoring and securing that it can change your heart. You don't have to have any of those things. If God gives you something like, you know, a youthful vitality that you seem to live forever and you don't age, hey, praise God. But one day you are going to die. But that's okay. That's not the end for you. That's just the beginning, right? If you're in Christ. Part of the riches God holds out for us. So point number one, the gospel holds depths that require unpacking, but they yield wonder, they yield worship. They hold out hope for us. They fill us with gratitude and humility. Depths. When, when Paul uses that word, it's used other places in the New Testament. It's not a mystery what it means. Some places it's translated deep water. Deep water. My brother and I, I have a sister too, our parents were amazing, still are, 
They took us every year, saved all their money to take us to Norfolk Lake in Arkansas. And to us, man, that was like Fiji, you know. Um, <clears throat> we had a little boat, and they would take us out, and my brother and I, being competitive, we would say, hey, I bet I can go deeper than you can. No, I can go deeper. And I've told you I have a problem depressurizing, so I always lost. But my brother, man, he would go to the bottom and come back up. He'd say, beat you, touch the bottom, and I would say, you've got to prove it, man. So then the contest was, you've got to go to the bottom, but you've got to bring something up, right? You've got to bring a handful of dirt or sand. And my brother several times almost drowned because he tried to bring, bring this big rock to the top. But here's what Paul is saying. What he means by depths here is that, that there is a bottomlessness to God's majesty and his beauty and his truth and his power. He wants to bring you, as it were, to like the edge of this Grand Canyon, man, this like panoramic view. Have you, ever, have you ever been brought up to the edge of something great and you just, you lose, you're just breathless? It's stunning. You're left with saying, oh, wow, my, my, my kids have this YouTube channel and it's called People Are Awesome. And it, it, it features people doing the most athletic, outrageous stunts from cliff diving to base jumping to skateboarding and acrobatics. Uh, and it just, it leaves, you, it leaves you speechless. And I find myself, if I watch one of these YouTube videos, they're really compelling, really well done. You're not even trying to. Spontaneously, what comes out of your mouth is, wow. Like, oh my word, that's amazing. That's what Paul wants. That's what Paul is after. He is wanting you and I to find that place where we, we are looking at what God has done for us, to us, in Christ. And we're left just without breath. We're left in wonder. But to do that, it takes work. It requires unpacking. I don't know if you're like me. I hate unpacking. It's work, right? It feels counterintuitive. Why would I want to do this? I'm already home. The fun is already over. But Paul wants us to unpack this together because there's treasures in here. There's treasures in here. Oh, the depths of the riches and the knowledge and the wisdom of God. It's bottomless. That's what he is saying. Paul wants to show you something more awesome and more impressive than any human achievement. He wants to show you riches. And here's what he means by that. Number one, it's going to span everything he's talked about in Romans. Bible scholars, Bible students agree Paul is doing two things here. Number one, he is putting a cap on the, the very last things he said about the Jews, the Gentiles, God's redemptive plan, God's sovereignty over history, but he's also looking back, spanning all 11 chapters of Romans, and he's summing up what he has taught us. So first, let's look at the very last thing that, that Paul said. Remember, he's asking a question. Is God finished with the nation of Israel? Is God done with the Jews? Because listen, here's this church. They have a Jewish Messiah, Jewish apostles, Jewish scriptures, and Jesus came to his own people, and they rejected him. Not only that, they're persecuting the church. They're in opposition. They're hindering the gospel progress. They hate it. They're at enmity with it. And people's minds are blown. They're like, wait a minute, Jesus is Jewish. Judaism is a Jewish religion. The church should be filled with Jews, but instead it's filled with Gentiles. The Jews are on the outside. And the church that Paul's writing to, Paul knew they would anticipate the question, what is going on? Has God changed his mind? Has God rejected the Jews because they rejected him? And Paul answers that. He says, no, on the contrary. God is working out his sovereign redemptive plan. There's never been a plan B. Plan A was God calls out a people for himself. And through those people, God blesses the whole world. He blesses the whole world. 
That's, there's a reason why the Jewish nation as a whole right now is hardened and they're blind and they're adversarial toward the gospel and against the church. Paul is saying God has a sovereign purpose for this. He has a reason for this. And here's how he ends that section. Let me read it. I think I have it down here somewhere. He says, as regards the gospel, they, he's talking about Jewish people, as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Hit the pause button real quick. You know what that means, irrevocable? If you are, I've been told this, chief, correct me if I'm wrong. If you are involved in an accident where somebody dies and you flee the scene and they catch you, guess what happens to your driver's license? It's revoked, probably forever. It probably should be, right? You lost it. It's done. You don't have it anymore. You had it before. You don't have it now. What Paul is arguing is that, look, you see a lot of opposition, blindness, hardness, resistance from the Jewish nation, but don't conclude from that that God has revoked his promises to them. God's promises are irrevocable. No matter what happens, his promises are irrevocable. His calling, his purposes, his pledges to the nation of Israel, he's not ever going to take those back, repent of them, or change his mind. They're irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, he's talking to Gentiles. Every Gentile at one time was disobedient to God. And listen, in the Old Testament, Gentiles had no hope whatsoever. He says, just as you, Gentiles, were once disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of the Jewish disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient and blind and hard in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. And then he, boom, he drops into this, oh, the debt. Do you hear what he's saying here? Listen, guys, I want to tell you something, just so that you and I are clear. Verse 32 is one of the hardest sayings in the whole Bible. Did you realize that? Let me read it for you, and you listen to it. Here's what Paul's saying. You see unbelief, hardness, rejection, anger, violence, and even beyond that. I would say look at all of history. You see hate. You see cruelty. You see war. You see death. You see scandals. You name it. Diseases, tsunamis, volcanoes. You see a lot of really bad, bleak stuff. We do, and, and, we, can, and we get cynical, right? Here's what Paul is saying. God has consigned all to disobedience. Well, that sounds really cruel. I don't like that. You know what that word means? It means incarceration. It seems like everyone has been in prison and unbelief. Why in the world would God do that? So that he may have mercy on all. And that blows Paul's mind, and it should blow our minds. Because listen, none of us would have had the wisdom to do that. Here's a fallen mankind. Here's God's mercy. How's he going to get that mercy to every single person? By doing exactly what he did. Listen, guys, Christianity is different, remarkably, radically different from every other religion in the world in a lot of ways, the primary one being grace. You get what you don't deserve. You don't pay for it. You don't earn it. God gives it to you. You don't pay, you don't pay for it. You don't leave the tip, right? But here's another way. Christianity's power source has been moving geographically. Do you realize that? You would think, okay, Christianity is a Middle Eastern religion, so we should find the power source right in the middle of... Jerusalem. But you know, it started there and it's moved all over the place. Today, I can go to Russia, right? 
I can go to Russia and I can find brothers and sisters in Christ worshiping in a church that's organized and structured. I can go to Japan. I can go to Romania. I can go to Korea. I can go to Italy. I can go to Costa Rica and South Africa. You find me another religion where that's true. Why is that? Here's the reason. Because all along, God's plan has been to call out a people for himself from every country, every nation, every village, every tribe, every city. That's why heaven's going to be like a bag of Skittles, right? Every tongue and every nation. Why? God gets more glory that way. He's not a tribal little deity over here. God is sovereign over all. And the reason that God has, has orchestrated and guided history the way that he has is so that his mercy would be seen, received, enjoyed, and shared by every single person in the world. And that blows Paul's mind and it should blow ours. And one of the takeaways is this. Listen, you, you see all these things in the world and you can conclude, oh my goodness, this is such a dark, terrible time. The church's days are numbered. This secular age we live in is terrible and Christianity is going to get rooted, rooted out and we should already be planning a funeral for the church. Guys, do you realize how long people have been saying that? They've been saying that for thousands of years. And here we are and we're growing. And I'm not just talking about grace life. The reports that I'm reading, man, don't believe all the headlines you read. People are leaving the church and deconstructing their faith in droves. I, I can test that. No, they're not. Everywhere I look and the people that I talk to and the pastors that I talk to, people have never been hungrier. They have never sensed this darkness within them and outside of them and have been desperate for answers. And you know where they're going to get it? You know where they're not going? They're not going to Barnes & Noble anymore. I mean, <laughs> that's a great place to read books and get good literature. But listen, self-help books aren't going to help you in the long run, are they? People are tired and they're jaded and they're disillusioned and they're cynical and they're, they've never been more open, I don't believe, to the gospel than they are today. God is at work. He's doing something. Aslan is on the move, right? Don't believe all the hype that you read out there about the church is dying. They've been saying that forever. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It won't and it's not. I'm more hopeful than I have ever been in ministry. And I'm more thankful, man, that you are a church that shows up here every single week and you want me to do what I feel called to do. You want me to keep unpacking these riches for you and show you, do you realize what you have in Christ? So that's the one thing Paul is doing. He's giving you this little snapshot into history. Sin will not have the final word. Unbelief will not have the final word. People have been saying that forever. Even in the New Testament, you know, you read, you read in the book of Acts, I think it's chapter 12, Things look terrible. The church is starting to grow, but the secular authorities are hacked. They're angry. They don't like it. They want to squash it. So you got King Herod over here, and what does he do? He kills, he kills James, the brother of John, cuts his head off. I mean, we, it's easy to read that. We get so familiarity does breed contempt and, and, and apathy sometimes. Do you realize what that must have been like for the apostles? The church is just, just starting to grow they're trying to stay connected to all these promises that Jesus gave them. And then one of the top, you know, Peter, James, and John. James was in the circle, and they got him. They cut his head off. And all the apostles are probably scared to death and thinking, man, what's going to happen to us? And you remember what happened? God showed them something. Herod, the one who was responsible for it, one day he shows up for this speech. He gives a speech, and all the people start chanting the voice of a God and not of a man. You remember what happened? 
It says, instantly, an angel of the Lord struck Herod, struck Herod, and worms ate him, and he died. And it's in that order. Dysentery, is that, is that the disease? Is there a doctrine here? Where your intestines get eaten alive by parasites and actually come out of you. It's a slow, painful, agonizing death. That's what it says. Worms ate him, and he died. And then it says this, but the word of God continued to grow and multiply. Did you like that? Hey, I like that. Underline those statements in your Bible. Herod, all the powers, Rome, secular authorities, opposition, unbelief. The world is against the church. Here's some worms. The church will continue to grow and multiply. Why? Because God's controlling these things. The world's not. Secular historians aren't. They're not writing the script here. Shakespeare said the world... Life is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury and signifying nothing. And God says, I'm actually directing history. And it's going someplace really good. And if you'll pay attention, I'll show it to you. So that's one of the little snapshots we get. That's one of the depths. It's that Paul's reminding us sin will not have the, the final word. And the, the nation of Jews will have their eyes open. The same God that en enabled them to be blinded and hardened is going to soften them and lift the veil. And they're going to turn back to their Messiah. But I think, this is my opinion, I think when Paul says, oh, the depths, I think he is looking back and spanning everything he said throughout the book of Romans. Now, Lord, Lord, help me to explain this to you. Guys, you got to pay attention here, okay? This is really important, what I'm, about to, what I'm about to share with you. Doing it again, TJ. I don't know what's going on with this thing. All right, here we go. So, the book of Romans has 16 chapters. It's an amazing book. Most people call the, the letter that Paul wrote to the church at Rome his theological magnum opus. It's one of the greatest theological treatments in the entire Bible anywhere. And Paul has written this book, he's written this letter to Christians in Rome, to the church at Rome, to, to those who are called to be saints, right? So he wrote it to a church, he wrote it to Christians, he's writing it to us by extension. Now I want to ask you a question. If you only had Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you had the four Gospels, you have four different vantage points of the, the birth, the life, the ministry, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, would you have enough? That's kind of a trick question, isn't it? That would be enough for you to be saved and for having an idea, hey, here's who Jesus is, here's what he came to do, he accomplished it, he was res resurrected, and look, and, and then he called you to be his witnesses, let's throw in the book of Acts. Because then we wouldn't know where this church came from. The book of Acts, it explains to you the, the, the birth, the existence, the expansion, and the extension of the church. So you got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which is a lot. And you got the book of Acts. You're, you're pretty stocked, man. You got, a, you got a lot. You got more than a lot of people will ever have. Here's, here's my question to you. Why do we have 22 other letters in the New Testament? Have you ever wondered that? What in the world? Why in the world do we have so much? Why? What? Don't we have enough? We got the Gospels. Do you know why? Here's why. Because you need more Gospel than just Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. God loves you so much. He's done so much for you, to you, within you. He wants you to know what He's given you. This is like the rest of the owner's manual. You ever been getting some, given something really cool, really radical? It does a bunch of stuff. And you get really excited, and on your own, you can figure out a few of the things, and eventually, you've got to go to the owner's manual. 
And you're like, dude, this thing did far more than I could have ever imagined. I had no idea. That's what the rest of the New Testament is. And I would say most of it can be summarized in the book of Romans. And here's what's crazy about the book of Romans. We're coming to the end of chapter 11. Do you realize there have been hardly any commandments in this letter so far? Did you realize that? There's almost 50 There's almost 50 commandments for you and I in the book of Romans. We haven't really gotten to any of them yet. Do you know why? Because what Paul has been after so far is just to take you to the depths of what God has done for you in Christ Jesus. We need that. We need a lot of that. That's why we have 22 letters full of it. So that you can know the height, the depth, the length, the breadth. So that you can know what your new identity is. So that you can be galvanized, so that you can face anything. And man, I love Paul's pastoral heart. And I want to do that. And I'm thankful that I have a, a church that, that pays me to do that and that welcomes me doing that. Every single week when I come in here and I stand up to preach, I have one prayer. Actually, I have a couple. I whisper to myself, I've told you when I walk up here, this is not my righteousness. Because no matter if, this, if I lay a big fat egg up here in the sermon tanks and you go home disappointed... Or if I preach the most amazing message you've ever heard in your life, Jesus is my righteousness, not this, right? The other prayer is, Lord, will you please help me to to partner with you in having Christ fully formed in these people? Because, Lord, we live in a dark time. All the forces, it feels like, are against us. Even our own fallen hearts sometimes, redeemed in Christ, we forget who we are We get identity theft, man. We start absorbing this hopeless worldview around us. And we need fresh glimpses of who we are in Christ. That's what all the rest of the New Testament is doing. That's why Romans doesn't start out with a bunch of bullet list or grocery list or to-do list. It starts out with Paul showing you exactly, exactly what God has done for you in Christ. How deep and profound and how rich and how amazing that is. We need that. Here's proof. Here's the very first thing that the Apostle Paul said in the book of Romans. Let me read it to you. Romans chapter 1. He says, So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. So he's going to show you that. This is a salvation, this is a righteousness that's for all people, Jew and Gentile, local and global. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So, Paul opens this letter by saying, hey, those of you who have believed the gospel, you've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you've formed a church in Rome, you follow the book of Acts, I'm Paul, and I'm, I'm, I can't be there in person, but I'm going to write out the gospel to you. Because there's so much more. There's so much more beauty. There's so much more power. Here's the user manual for who you are in Christ and what he's called you to do. And man, he doesn't really tell you to do a thing until you get to chapter 30. Or excuse me, chapter 12. This next chapter, there's almost 30 commandments. But up until now, there's only been a few. Reckon yourself dead to sin, but alive in Christ. That's one of the commandments that we've had, but they're few and far between because Paul doesn't want you to do anything yet. He wants you to to look. He wants you to see. 
He wants you to unpack all these things with him. One person, it was Richard Lovelace, he wrote a book called Dynamics of Spiritual Renewal in 1972. It's still being used as a textbook in seminaries for classes on revival. And he summarized all the things that you and I have been given as children of God. And he says it in four ways. Number one, he says this, you are accepted. You are accepted. Do you guys know that about yourself? Do you know that in Christ Jesus, you are accepted? You are welcomed into the presence of God. You are reconciled. There's all kinds of theological terms. You've been united with Christ. You are one with Him. You've been buried with Christ. You've died with Christ. You've been raised with Christ. You're accepted because of what Jesus Christ has done on your behalf. Do you know that every single person in the world is looking for that somewhere? We are, listen guys, we're all on this quest for acceptance and for righteousness. And every other place besides Jesus is a dead end. You're going to be either paranoid or proud. And in Christ, you are accepted in the beloved. You've been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So Richard Lovelace says, number one, you are accepted. Number two, you're free. You're free. You're no longer captive. We've been held captive by our sins. We've been blinded and held captive by the devil. We're bound We need to be empowered. We need to be freed. We need to be liberated. That's what Jesus said he came to do. I have come to set the captives free. I've come to proclaim the acceptable year, the year of Jubilee. You're free. The shackles have been cut. The chains have fallen to the ground. You're free. Because of Jesus Christ, you're free. See, Paul spent chapter after chapter, chapter 6 and 7 and 8, telling you how free you are, how empowered you are. You've been filled with the Holy Spirit of God Now you can say no to sin and yes to obedience because of Jesus. Before you couldn't. You couldn't. You were bound, man. You were helpless. But now you're free. So you're accepted in Christ. You're welcomed. You're free. You've been liberated. He says you're not alone. That's the third one. You're not alone. Man, we could just go on forever talking about that. How many people feel alone? Maybe you've got friends. Maybe you have a family, maybe you have a job, maybe you got this community after community, maybe you play sports, maybe, uh, you got this hobby, but still you feel misunderstood, you feel forgotten, you feel left out, you feel like there's not a place at the table, you feel like you are on your own in this world. And Paul says you may feel that way, but don't believe that lie for a minute if you're in Christ. You're never alone, ever alone. Christ is within you. His spirit has been planted so deep. And here's the last thing. You have spiritual authority. You have spiritual authority. You are not at the mercy and the whims of the spiritual forces around you. God has equipped you. He's given you armor. You're not on your own at all. You have authority. And I know that, I know that truth can be abused, and it has abused. But friends, it's in the Bible. We don't have to be afraid anymore. You ever just get afraid like, man, I feel. Paul in another place says, you have not been given a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. So listen, guys, because of Jesus, Romans has been teaching us, you're accepted, you're free, you're not alone, and you have spiritual authority. Those are just four little tenets of the riches that Paul is talking about here. Oh, the riches, the depths. Blows me away. We need that. We need to be reminded of that. We 
need to, to have our, our thinking realigned and our tank filled back up every Sunday because we forget these things. So here's a test. Does the gospel, that word means good news, does the message about God's rescue of you in Jesus Christ, does that move you? Does that excite you? Does that leave you stunned and wonder and speechless? Because here I think it's what so often happens, guys, and Lord protect me from sounding critical. Depending on where you grew up and what, how old you are, here is a version of the gospel that you may have heard, and it may have been the only one you ever heard. Jesus died for sinners like you and me so that one day, way out there in the future, when you die, you can go to heaven. Hey, that's good news. That's some of the best news in the world. Thank God for it. And, and we'll go on for all eternity celebrating that. But that is, that is one way to view the gospel. And it may not even be the most powerful way to view the gospel. You can get that in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and it's great. That's a good message, right? But there is so much more. <laughs> there, are so, there are so many more depths and so many more riches to explore to what the gospel is. And I want that for you. When you come to Grace Life Church, I want you to know. You may say, hey, look, Jesus died for me so that one day I can go to heaven. But man, I sure feel radically insecure. I still feel alone. I still get defensive all the time. And you know what? If I got a phone call right now and it told me I have stage four cancer, it would absolutely wreck me. And I want to say as your pastor, I can help you with that. The Bible has plenty to say to equip you and fill your tank up. So those things don't wreck you. That's why Paul could say, we are cast down, but we are not in despair. See, Paul knew something, and he wants you to know it. So often it seems like I meet a lot of Christians, and their grasp of Christianity is so slight. It's their fingers are on the, I mean, you could just like step on their fingers and they would fall, it seems like. And I want them, I want them to experience like the Swiss Alps, the depths. Do you realize what God has done for you? You don't have to be insecure. You don't have to be looking over your back. You don't have to, to tap into all these hopeless worldviews and eat poop so you can look young forever and use teeth whitener and get hair implants. You don't have to do any of that. I mean, you can if you want to. You may look better. I don't know. But listen, <laughs> your security and your identity is not, doesn't have to be tethered to your popularity or to your bank account or to your health. Doesn't have to be. Paul says, man, those things are fading. Right? He wants to take you into the deep end of the Christian swimming pool, so to speak. So often we just play in the shallows, man. We play in the shallows. And I think the enemy is content if you just stay right there. Let's not go too deep. Let's, not, let's keep it simple, keep it shallow, keep Christians naive and ignorant. Yeah, Jesus, Jesus died for your sins, and the devil hates that. But if that's the only thing you ever know... He'll, he, maybe he'll leave you alone. Paul wants you to go into the deep end. Here's the second point, and it's a very fast one. Don't worry, all right? Second, last point. Unpacking and celebrating those depths are a community project. Sure, you can read your Bible on your own, and you should, and I hope you do. But guys, listen to me. There is something that happens when we come here and unite and sing the songs that we were singing and hear the prayers have fellowship together, converse with one another, pray together. There's something that happens in here. There's a dynamic. There's a power that's present that does not happen when we're by ourselves. And that's by design. 
And I say that because so often people say, you know what, I can worship God on, on my deer stand, the golf course, and the bleachers at the beach. Sure, you can. Most of the time, I wonder if people do that tell me that. <laughs> it's like they're trying to, I promise, man, I worship in my deer stand. You, know, you worship something in your deer stand, right? And look, I love to hunt too, so that's not being critical. But what I'm saying is, man, you are missing out. If you had this Lone Ranger mentality of the Christian faith, you never unite together. You don't realize how needy you are for the body of Christ and that God does something really spectacular and supernatural here when we gather together, then you're really missing out. Look, I want to show you this verse. Check this out. Man, that's going to be hard. to. Can you see that okay? Okay. That's the wrong one. I'm glad you can see it. Here we go. Here's the right one. All right. <laughs> this is Paul writing another letter that's full of, you know, other forms of depths that you should read sometime. Ephesians. He says, this is his prayer. According to the riches of his glory, may he, that is God and the Holy Spirit, grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love, may had strength to comprehend with, what's that say? All the saints. All the times you find in this passage the word you, it's in the plural tense. He's writing this letter to a church, and he is telling them, I'm praying for you, plural, for you all. We say in the South, I'm praying for you all, so that when you come together, you're filled with God's Spirit, and you are able to comprehend. That word means to grasp. It means to seize. It means to understand so that you can not only understand but grab a hold of so that you can comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the what? And the depth. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul says you want to be filled with all the fullness of God. You want to plumb the depths together. Do you want to be strong? Do you want a joy that's unassailable? Do you want a strength and an endurance and a perseverance that can carry you through the darkest time in your life? Then you better be gathering together with God's people because that's the only way you're going to get there. You may be okay without the church. I don't, I don't think you will. This is just great. Maybe you'll be okay without the church. You'll be lacking though. There will be a weakness. There will be a blind spot of some kind in your life that you're not going to get filled. I'm sorry, man, but I use a lot of athletic illustrations. Growing up, I played high school football, and that was everything. I was an unbeliever in high school. Everything was on the line. Everything. Friday night was my world. That was my world. It's all I thought about. Everything I did, all the trouble I stayed out of was because I was afraid it was going to damage my optimal performance as a running back in high school. And man, I will never forget when we were all together in the locker room before the game and the coach gave a speech. That's the closest thing to religion outside of the church you're going to find in the South, I promise you, is a football locker room on a Friday night about 6.50 p.m. Am I lying, guys? Anybody play sports? We were united. We had a purpose. There was an excitement. There was a sense of urgency and unity. We all knew why we were there, what our mission was, what we had to do, who the opponent was, what it would take to defeat them, and that coach gave a rousing speech. And if you weren't in there, man, you were missing out. The people that busted out of that locker room, man, we were ready. It wouldn't matter. You could have, there could have been a team of Goliaths on the other side, and we would have already been made to believe by our coach, who turns out was a liar, <laughs> that it didn't matter. 
It's like Lord of the Rings, you know, you are men of Gondor, whatever comes through that door. <laughs> and there's like these troll giants, cave trolls that kind of, anyway. Uh, but there was always a guy, man. There was always this guy. Now listen, don't, don't, don't misread that. No, that, that guy thinks he's good. He's good. He's too good. He's too good to be over with the other guys, getting this rousing speech by the coach. He's on his own. He's got his ear, well, now it would be his AirPods, all right? And he's thumping to some techno. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He, doesn't, he doesn't need the speech. He doesn't need the team. He's got it, man. He's on his own. Usually it's the quarterback, you know? <laughs> I don't know. This probably doesn't register. Look, let me try, let me try something else. Anybody know what that is? <laughs> you worked for a pesticide company, didn't you? I knew it. That is an army ant. And do you know that's actually not a picture of an army ant? It's, a, it's an artwork. And do you know why? Because you would be hard-pressed to ever find an army ant on their own. It's just, it, it won't happen. You will never find, if you do, there's something really wrong with them and they need a doctor. Army ants are so, they're one of the most impressive social structured creatures in the world. Army ants are. Did you know they're virtually blind? Army ants are blind. And if you find one by, their, by themselves, they're confused. They've been cut off from the colony and they'll be dead very soon. But together, together I love documentaries. I nerd out on those things. Together, army ants, man, they're impressive. They build bridges. Scientists have still been studying army ants to figure out how they do this. And they figure out there's something called pheromone. Am I saying that right? There's this pheromone. It's like this chemical release. And it like spreads through the colony. It's like a communication uh, apparatus. And all these ants, it unites them. They know where the queen is. They know where they need to go. They know where the predators are. They know how to hunt. By themselves, they're worthless. But when they're together, man, they form this living biovac nest. They protect the queen. They protect the larvae. They can spread out 20 feet wide. And like, they're one of the most deadly forces in the Amazon forest. They'll consume anything in their path. But they're blind. And they have to depend on one another. And alone, they're dead. And when I hear, man, when I see that, I almost think, God, did you, was this for us? Just to say, hey, look, you know you're just like that. You stupid army ant that's, that's, that's by yourself over here. You actually think you can accomplish what I have for you? You're trying to do it on your own? There are things that happen when we're together that just do not happen when we're apart. One of my favorite passages is Psalm 73. And it's, you should read it. It's a great Lord's Day meditation. It's about a man who loved God, but he was jaded and he was disillusioned because he looked around and he saw wicked people, unrighteous people, hateful people prospering. Their kids weren't sick. You know, they went to Harvard. They went to Yale. They had three-car garages, six-digit salaries, a posh crib. They didn't get diagnosis of, of cancer. And here he is. He's suffering. He's being chastened. And he's starting to get fed up. And, and, and I love the fact that Psalm 73 is in the Bible because we know, hey, other people have felt the same way you do. And he starts asking God, like, what the heck? What the heck is going on here? Have I misunderstood? I thought you loved me. I thought you were for me. And he's trying to process these things, and he can't. He can't do it. And he comes to a part, there's the middle of Psalm 73, and he says this. He says, when I thought how to understand these things, it was too painful for me. He says, I was like a beast. I was like a wild animal before you. I was confused. I was angry. I was dangerous. He said, when I thought how to understand this, it was too painful until I went to the temple. Excuse me. Until I went to the sanctuary. 
until I went to the temple, until I got together with your people in, corp- in corporate worship. And then it says this. He says, then I understood. See, there is a comprehension, Ephesians 3, so that we can comprehend together. There is a comprehension that's going to happen when you're gathered together with God's people and the Word of God is being opened and the Spirit of God is at work that you're not going to get out there. You're not going to get the clarity you're looking for out there on your own. It ain't going to happen. There's going to be gaps. I'm sorry. But there's something that happens when you come together. You get understanding, right? You get the clarity. See, the true test of whether you've been to church, it's not if you feel different when you leave, it's if you've gained understanding. It's like, you know what? Something, ha- something came together for me in church. I was sad. I felt hopeless. I was afraid. And then I gathered together with God's people. And I, hey, listen, I don't know. It may not always be the sermon. I pray that it is. I pray this connects you somehow deeper. Maybe it's a lyric in a song that you heard. Maybe it's a prayer that somebody prayed. Maybe it's just a quick word of encouragement somebody offered you in a hug. I don't know, but I'm telling you this. It ain't going to happen out there the way that it does in here. We're better together. So those are the two points today, friends. More to come. We're going to finish this passage next time we're in Romans. The gospel holds depths that you need to unpack and explore so that you can celebrate. Gospel deep. And secondly... Those depths are to be unpacked and celebrated and shared together. You've experienced this, haven't you? Haven't you? Aren't you better here than you are out there by yourself? We're stronger together. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the patience of your people, Lord, that endure long messages like this. God, I pray we we feel like we've been to the edge of the spiritual Swiss Alps and just peered down and have seen what you have done for us. We are people who have broken your commandments, Lord. We have sought righteousness for ourselves outside of Christ. We have sinned. We have slighted you, Lord. And, and your word tells us earlier in this book that there are none righteous, no, not one. All of us had turned aside. And yet in your mercy and in your grace and in your wisdom, you have made a way for sinful people like us, Jew and Gentile, men and women, rich and poor, cultured and uncultured, educated and uneducated. It doesn't matter who we are, where we came from, what we've done. You have made a way through your son, Jesus Christ, for us to be made right with you, for us to be made righteous, Lord, to get the imputed righteousness of Jesus. And that way was that you would send your perfect son into the world to live the life we would not live and to die the death that we all deserved. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for this tremendous truth. We celebrate it together today. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, listen, this is the, this is the time in our service where we have a song of reflection, and we just ponder what we've heard. We just chew on it, chew the cut a little bit. So Sarah's going to play a, a piece on the piano here, and I want you to think, and maybe as we close out our, our time together, I want you to think about this, because he says, oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. So here's this, here's this massive problem. Fallen, sinful, rebellious human beings that have been separated from God, right, by their sin. Our sins have separated us from God. Here's God. He's powerful. He's sovereign. He's holy. And he's just. What is God going to do to fix this problem? Now, when you think about this, it's staggering because, you know, they're, they're saying right now, 
that AI, artificial intelligence, represents a tremendous danger to civilization. Have you guys heard about this? They're saying, AI, you better watch AI. Some of the top scientists and the top thinkers have said, I'm telling you, I've warned you, mark it down, AI will destroy civilization. What are they talking about? You ever thought about this? Elon Musk and others like him? Well, here's what they're saying. Artificial intelligence is pre-programmed. You know what it's pre-programmed to do? To find solutions to the problems that plague humanity. Right? Whatever you believe those problems are, we got a, you know, a polluted environment, or we got too much violence, we got too much crime, too much conflict, too much opposition, too much death and cruelty and sex trafficking. If you unleash an AI robot and say, hey, go, go find the source of all these problems and eliminate it. What's the robot going to do, ladies and gentlemen? What's the source of all the problems in this world? We are. So if an AI robot has been sent on a seek and destroy mission, who's he going to destroy? Us. Now, now here's, the, here's the depths of the wisdom of God. Is, God. is God intelligent? There's artificial intelligence that will destroy you to solve the problem. They're, they're warning us. And then there's divine design. Did God destroy? Are we the source of the problem? Yes. What did God do? What was his wisdom? He can destroy us and start over, which, by the way, he did in Genesis 6, just to show us that wasn't the answer. Or God could send his son. What wisdom? God could send his son and destroy, and destroy him on the cross instead of us and then raise him from the dead. When you, when you ponder the depths of the wisdom, when Sarah plays this song, you think about that. God could have and should have destroyed us, but instead we get grace, we get mercy, we get freedom. We get power. We're not alone. We have spiritual authority. Hallelujah to Jesus. Boy, Sarah.